You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by the 5-Day Money Challenge. Get your stuff together with money and increase your confidence in just five days. Save your seat at WhitneyHanson.com slash money challenge and join in on the fun. Hello and welcome to the Money Nerds Podcast, where owning a calculator, budgeting your money, and having a net worth is actually cool. I'm your host, Whitney Hansen, and each week I'll be chatting with inspiring people to learn their secrets to financial success. Now let's dive into the show. My friends, the time has come. We are ready to do another Q&A episode for Hashtag Ask Whitney. It's been a hot minute since I've done one of these, so I apologize, but you have sent in some like really great questions, and I want to make sure that I cover the ones that I thought would be most applicable to you. So hopefully this helps, but let's go ahead and dive in. The first question is from Anonymous. So we're going to keep this one on the DL. This person says, Whitney, I'm a fan of your podcast and they have helped me start to get my finances on track. I have a question. If either you can answer or post anonymously on your site, I finally have my credit in good standing. I just got married and I knew his credit was bad already, but we started mortgage hunting and now I'm realizing how bad his is. Besides working to pay off his debt, is there any way I can help his credit with mine? Is adding him to my accounts a good or bad idea? Right now, we've kept our finances separate, but I want to work to improve his his score. Thanks for any advice. Okay, this is such a great question. There's a few things that immediately come to mind. Now, first and foremost, I'm not going to beat you up for not combining your finances. I do not think that is as big of an issue as some people make it seem. So I think it's completely fine that you guys do have separate accounts, especially if you decide to keep it that way. That's totally fine, too. So first question I have when I start to think through this is, are you actually working with a lender? So have you gone through the process to talk with a lender to either get pre-approved or pre-qualified to see what you might be able to afford currently? The reason I say working with a lender is because sometimes when we go through that process of getting a mortgage, we can really mess stuff up if we're not working in sync with our lender. It's really, really important to consult with them first. And then the next question I have is your time frame for buying. What kind of time period are you looking for? Are you trying to buy this year? Are you okay with waiting a little bit of time? That definitely has a factor as well in the type of advice that I would give. Okay, so the biggest factors that come into play when it comes to getting a mortgage are two things. One is your credit score for sure. That is a huge indicator. That's one of those things where as much as I hate it, it indicates for a lender how responsible you might be and how likely you are to repay debt. So that's kind of what that's about. The other factor is the DTI or debt to income ratio. This is another piece that might be helping you guys as a whole. So it's important to talk to a lender to see 
what on the credit report is actually hurting you. Is it credit cards that have been charged and they're completely maxed out and that's what's hurting? Is it old accounts where maybe he got into a really bad financial pinch and couldn't afford some payments so it went into collections? Those are very different scenarios. And so that's why it's so important to really pay attention to the debt to income ratio as well in sync with talking to your lender. So let's go through a couple examples. So I want to work through that time frame for buying because this is going to change things drastically. If you are trying to buy now and you want to buy a house by the end of the year, one of the things to ask yourself is, should I do a single versus a joint applicant? So what that means is you as an individual would go apply for the home. The house would essentially be under your name. It's all under your name. You're using your own credit. You're using your own income. You're filing as if you're single, right? So that's how a single application would work. That can be good. So if your income is decent and you have good credit, it could be a good option, especially if you're trying to buy really, really quickly because credit does not turn around that fast. Like it can, it can, it can definitely make some very good strides, but as a whole, it generally won't turn around as quickly if you're trying to buy within like the end of the year, it's going to be a little bit tricky. So that's the other piece that I would start to consider is, can I buy this house on my own? Yes, we still share the mortgage, but as soon as your your spouse cleans up his credit, you could always refinance to have his name added. That's definitely an option too. And so that's one thing that you might consider. Now remember, this is only if you're trying to buy immediately. The other thing too is a lot of times, some of the first-time homebuyer programs, the FHA loans, will actually work with you a little bit more if you do have bad credit. So just because he has bad credit does not mean he's disqualified from all the loans. It might be from a conventional loan that might be a little bit trickier, but it's not from everything. And so that's the other piece too, is make sure you do your research on all of the FHA loans available, especially for people with bad credit. Now that's the scenario. If you're trying to buy now, let's talk through if you're willing to wait a little bit, because that does drastically change things as well. One of the things that you are alluding to is having him use your credit. So what that essentially is, is you're adding him as an authorized user. This can be a really, really good way to go. So what you want to do before you add somebody as an authorized user is first and foremost, ask if the credit card reports or the account, if they report to the credit bureaus. So it's not good to have somebody on your account as an authorized user if it doesn't even get reported to the bureau. So that's the first question to ask. The other thing to ask before you add anybody, I don't care if it's your spouse or your friend or your mom or anybody, your kid, before you add anybody to your accounts, the question to ask is, are they responsible today? Now, again, stuff happens. We're not perfect. Things come up all the time where we maybe make some bigger financial mistakes or life just kicked us really hard. No shame in that. It can happen to anybody. But who they were and who they are today are sometimes very different and sometimes not different things. And that's why it's so important before you do that, because that could be opening you up to financial liability before adding anybody as an authorized user to your credit cards. Make sure that they are responsible today. Or here's what I would do if it were Tony and I and he had terrible credit and we were trying to buy a house, I would add him as an authorized user under my credit cards, but I would not give him the card. <laughs> I wouldn't even give him the opportunity to have that. Now, of course, when you're an authorized user, if you've never heard of this before, basically how that works is anything that you do with your card 
is directly impacting your credit and the user's credit. And so it's important because that does go both ways. And so that's why it's such a risky thing to do, but can also be very helpful because they essentially like almost inherit your credit report for that specific account. So it's a really, really great way to go if they are truly responsible today. Now, the other thing, if you're trying to wait and you're not in a huge rush to buy, the other piece is to start paying off debt and paying bills on time. Again, I don't know all the details, so I'm just going with a little bit of a blanket advice here. But if they are are in debt, credit card debt, car debt, like whatever the heck debt it might be, then one of the things you can do is just make sure that all of those bills are scheduled to be automatically paid, at least the minimum balances. That's going to keep you updated and current. And that helps your credit score a little bit for sure. On-time payments are definitely a big portion of that. But the other thing to remember when it comes to credit cards is the 30% utilization rule. And essentially what that means is any cards that you have, and I would look at this for every single individual card and make that calculation of what is the total limit, the available credit to you, and how much is charged to that card. So if that amount, let's say it's a $1,000 card, the 30% rule basically says you should never put more than $300 on that $1,000 card. The, the card with a $1,000 limit never put more than 300 It seems a little bit extreme, but it's a really, really healthy way to manage credit. And frankly, that's what the credit bureaus want to see. So if you're trying to do that, I would start to look at those debts to figure out how do you start to pay those down to at least the 30% mark. Again, this is different advice if you're just trying to buy something right now. Um, very different. But if you have a little bit of time to work on the credit score, that's the best way to go. So I hope that helps. But more than anything, keep me posted. I'd love to see what happens with your lives and how you end up approaching this scenario. So please shoot me a message and keep me posted. All right, let's dive into the next question. The next one comes from the Facebook group, Valeria. She says, I need advice. My car lease is going to end next month and I need to make a decision on what car I will get next or if I keep the one I have. Either way, I need to get financing for that. I am looking at cars that will have the same payment as my current lease. I'm worried because my fiance and I are in the market for a house and found some within our budget. We live in California, so housing is expensive and I don't know how a car lease or payment will affect the process since they will need to run my credit, but I do need a car. Any advice would be appreciated. Okay, this is a really really great question. Again, I don't, we're, we're doing a lot of home lending stuff. Um, so of course, same thing, always, always consult with whoever you're working for, for your mortgage, your, your loan, because they're going to give you the best advice for a house. So here's the crazy thing about car leases. First and foremost, 20% of all new cars are leased. 20% of all new cars in the market are leased. Now, when you hear leasing, I don't think people understand often what it exactly means. They seem to think it's like, cool, you get a, a new car to drive around every you know five years or so, you get to trade it in and you get another new one for the same type of payment. It sounds like a good deal. But leasing is essentially signing up for renting a car for life with mileage restrictions. So generally there's like 12,000 to 15,000 miles per year is all you can put on the car. And I say all, but that's usually about average for most people, but that is restricted. So the other piece on why leasing tends to be not a great idea is because you lose all of that equity. Every single month that you make that payment, you're paying to rent the car. You don't have any ownership of that whatsoever. The other piece too is car companies love leasing. 
Because remember, cars depreciate like a rock, especially brand new cars. So anytime you're leasing, it's immediately dropping in value significantly, but not on their dime, on your dime. And so that's why they tend to love leasing and push it very, very hard. But for you, it's generally not an ideal situation. In fact, almost never is in an ideal situation. So getting off of that little rant, I just wanted to share that just in case somebody didn't know what leasing was or had no clue how it works. That's basically it. So let's talk through your options, my friend. Okay, first option is when you turn in the car, you keep it and you get a loan for the car. I don't think that's an ideal option, but it is certainly one of the options that you will be faced with. Do I just keep the exact same one and just get a loan for it and finance the rest of it and pay pay it off in general? Um, That is certainly an option. The second option that you might consider is financing a different car altogether. A cheaper car, one that already has all of that depreciation taken. Maybe it's a little bit older, but it's one that you can very, very easily swing. The piece that I would be careful of is not focusing on how much of a payment can you make, but more than anything, it's what is the car worth and is it going to be reliable? Those are the two pieces that I think are so important when it goes to car shopping, but don't focus so much on the payment piece because you can find payments that will fit whatever your budget is. It just depends on, is it a you know, 10 year loan? Is it a three year loan? Is it a five year? All of that can be finagled by just shifting how long the the loan term is. So I wouldn't necessarily focus so much on the payment piece. Um, But that is certainly another option. Finance a different car and make sure it's one that you can drive for quite some time and you can financially afford. Now, the third option, which I think is actually probably the best option in this scenario is to really wait before you buy a car. And this is such, it's not fun advice, but it's great advice if you're trying to buy a house. The question and the problem that I see so many people go through is they will finance their car and not really think about, you know, how does that payment affect them? And then when they go to get their house loan, their debt to income ratio is way too high because of that car. And it really does impact your interest rates. It impacts how much of a house you can find afford, like all of that stuff, it comes together and works against you. So if I were in your shoes, this is not the sexiest advice, but it's probably the best given the situation that I'm hearing is to buy a cheap car, just buy a cheap car, one in cash, ideally that you can use until you get your home. And then you can sell that car. And if you choose to go finance after the home is closed and you have your dream place, then you can go finance a different car. So again, not the sexiest advice, but if you're trying to get a house and that's the top priority, um, that's the way to approach it. It's a little bit hard to sometimes control that like urge to buy the right car at the right time. Um, But from a financial standpoint, get the house first and then get the car after. It's gonna give you a much, much better approach to what your cash flow will be. It's gonna help you when you have that new house payment. And ultimately, houses are always more expensive than we think. So it's really nice to have that consistency for a little bit of time where you know exactly what the house is going to cost, and then you can determine how much of a car payment can I actually afford. So I would do it a little bit backwards, but I hope that that helps. Um, 100%, that's how I would approach it if I were in your shoes. Okay, next question is from Jean. Jean says, I have a quick question. I'm tracking spending with pen and paper to see exactly where I'm putting my money. I made some purchases this weekend, which would be on my January expenses, but they just showed as pending from my bank account today, which is February. Which month should I count them in? Does it even matter? Thanks. 
I love this question because it's so much of a semantics thing that we all fall into sometimes when we're tracking our money and we're trying to pay attention. We immediately are like, oh my God, what do I do about this? This is a little different. Should I actually put this in this month or that month or, you know, just all the different things. So here's what I personally would recommend. I usually group those as the month that you swiped your card. So when I think through one of those like almost on the cusp um, purchases, I will always look at when did I swipe my card? Did I swipe my card when I went to Target and it was actually in January? Then I would mark that as a January expense. So that's how I personally approach it. I think either way is totally fine. Whatever you decide, it's completely okay. Just make sure that you are staying consistent. The other piece too is if you're doing a spending log, most of the time spending logs are based off of your current purchases in real time, not from bank reconciliations necessarily. And so that's the other piece too, where if you're doing a spending log and you're doing it in real time, you probably are not looking at the bank account as much for reconciling. You're, I mean, of course, look at it. Don't get me wrong. Look at your account every single day. But from a tracking perspective, it's usually done the minute you swipe your card, it's pulling out your little notebook, writing down the purchase. So that's how I would personally approach that. But I love that question because I think it's really a semantics question that, you know, we've all been there before. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Okay. So the next question comes from Karen. Karen says with interest rates as low as they are right now, how would you suggest investing extra income? both for long-term wealth and a short-term gain. Okay, so you are correct, my friend. Interest rates are terrible right now when it comes to savings. But if you're going to save your way to wealth, I think you're gonna have a really hard time. So for that reason, I do believe in savings accounts that do dictate whatever the Federal Reserve is, the interest rates that they're putting out. That does matter for sure, but only for emergency funds and really, really short-term goals. For longer-term goals and for wealth building, I'm a much bigger fan of investing. And I'm an investor for the long-term. I should be very clear about that. That's my, my buy and hold is my strategy. That's what I do. That's what I believe in. I've seen the stats. I think it works really, really well. So with the extra income that you might have, you can still take Take that money and invest it in a taxable investing account. So the way that would work is instead of putting it into a retirement account, like a 401k, a 403b, a Roth IRA, or a traditional IRA, you can also put that into just a normal investing account. And that's completely fine. So you can invest in very similar things as you would in retirement accounts. But the difference is you're going to be paying taxes on your gains. And so that's the important piece. But if you have a goal that generally is longer than five years, that's typically when it would make sense to invest that into equities or stocks. So that's the best thing to do if it's a longer term goal, if you're not trying to rely on the interest rates. And again, I would never invest your emergency fund because your emergency fund is not designed to be a moneymaker. It's designed to cover your butt. It's a form of insurance. So for that reason, I wouldn't care so much about the interest rates on a general savings account. But for goals, yeah, just go open up a a taxable account, a brokerage account and start doing your investing through there as well. Okay, now I'm going to answer a secondary question that says, I'm strongly considering becoming a financial coach. Where should I start? Okay, shameless plug, you should start with my course. 
seriously, I can only talk about my course so much because I actually created it based on how I built my own coaching business. So I know it works because it worked for me and it's working for other people in the course as well. So I can't really speak to other things, but I can speak to my own content that I create. Go figure. And if you are interested in learning more about that course, I highly recommend checking it out. You can go to WhitneyHanson.com and there's a little section that's called work with me on there. That's where you can hire me as a financial coach, or you can learn more about become a financial coach, my course. The reason why I'm such a fan of it is for the price of the course, it's the best value out there because you also get every single month a Q&A call that's live. So you get to respond, you get to get feedback on your business, your struggles, and get some help as you go throughout the process, which honestly, I haven't seen that anywhere. So it's a really, really killer value. So let's talk a little bit about some tactics on how you can get started as a financial coach. I think the best thing you can do is get very, very clear on how to tell your personal story. Stories are what sell people all the time. It moves people. It connects us. That's what people will remember. And so for you personally, I happen to know you've gone through a really incredible financial transformation, which I'm so proud of you. But one of the things to do is figure out a way to very concisely tell that story so that people really respond and they remember you for that. So what that does first is it shows that you actually give a shit about your finances. It really does. Nobody wants to work with a financial coach that doesn't care about money and is only doing it for money. That's not very, it's not very enticing. Like who wants to work with that type of person? But if people can see how genuinely passionate you are about personal finance and changing other people's lives and really helping them because you've been there and you've been in the trenches and you know what it's like, you know what it's like to go to the grocery store and swipe your card and barely have $5 on there and think, oh my God, is this, is this going to bounce? Do I have enough money? You know what it's like to struggle, to work those extra jobs just to pay off debt. You know what it's like to turn your head and say, ah, I really want to buy this and I really want to take this sweet vacation, but I don't have the money and I'm not going to do it. Or I really want to buy this car, but I'm not going to do it because I just paid off my previous car and I'm committed to a new and better life for me. When you come from that place of, you know what it's like, it is so much easier to connect with people and more than anything to help people. I think that element of empathy is everything when it comes to financial coaching. And so one of the things that you can do to get started is get really good at telling your own personal story. Share that everywhere. Share it on social media. Share it with people that you care about. Share it in public. The other piece is once you're sharing your story, people are going to naturally come talk to you about what their situation is. That's an opportunity for you to learn to take notes, and to help them for free, only in the beginning. I'm not a fan of working for with people for free because I think when you pay, you pay attention. I really do believe that. So for the beginning, as a financial coach, you need some practice clients to see if you even enjoy it. Sometimes we think it's going to be a really fun experience until you get into it and then you find out maybe this isn't for me. Like once you learn that financial coaching is more about marketing sometimes than it is actually working with people, it might steer you away from that. And so that's not to say that that's the only thing to focus on, but getting those practice clients is really, really helpful in the beginning because it helps you hone in on your style of coaching if you even enjoy it and gives you a better understanding of what people are actually going through and the language they use when they're going through these situations. So that's the best place to start. I really do believe that. I think you have to be a phenomenal marketer to make money as a financial coach or any online business in all fairness. You have to really learn the marketing stuff. Um, that 
that was the bummer for me when I first started coaching. I just wanted to help people, but thankfully I really learned to love marketing too. So that's another passion of mine too, but that's, that's the best place to start. And then of course, make sure you take that course because it will help you and give you all of the tools that I use to build my own business and provide you with the guidance every single month through those Q and a live calls too. So I hope that helps. All right, last question for today. This one comes from Lindsay. Lindsay says, just scheduled closing on my first house. How much nervousness is normal? It's actually a very low low mortgage, but is in a flood zone. So insurance is astronomical. It was one of the best deals I could find on the market in the right area. Tips for paying off the mortgage ASAP to decrease insurance rates. Okay, so here's the thing. Before I put any money into paying off anything early, here's the question to ask yourself. Why do you want to? Like seriously, why do you want to pay off this mortgage early? Is it strictly to decrease that insurance rate or is it because this is your dream home, you know you're going to be in it for a long time and you'd rather pay it off as quickly as possible so you have true financial freedom? That could be the case too. But what I find is a lot of people are not very happy in the home that they're in. It's not their dream home. It's just a stepping stone. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But if it's just a stepping stone home and you know that this is not the home you're going to be in long term, then I would not put my money into paying down a mortgage early if it's not a place I'm going to be in long term. What I would do instead is really set up a savings account or an investing and put all of that extra money that you would have put towards paying down your mortgage early, put it into something that can generate more income. So when you are ready for your dream home in the future, you have a massive down payment and you may not even need to sell that house because it could then possibly be turned into a rental. So that's one little perspective too that I know is sometimes very unpopular, but that's the way I approach houses and paying those down and paying them off early. So now let's get to the the root of your question. Your question, we're assuming you decide, yes, I do want to pay off my mortgage early. It is very important to me. There's a few different strategies that you can use. They all work the exact same way, but they're structured slightly differently. So choose your flavor, so to speak. So let's assume you're in a normal nine to five job and you are paid twice a month roughly. You're bi-weekly. So every two weeks you get a paycheck. If that's the case on a normal year, you're going to have a few months where you get paid three paychecks instead of two. So that's kind of a cool opportunity because if you have your stuff together with your finances and your budgeting, and you're really like a month ahead on your bills, then you are in a really great position where you can take those extra paychecks, the little bonus paychecks and put it directly towards your mortgage. That's an easy, easy way to start to pay down your mortgage really quickly. Generally speaking, an extra two payments per year for your mortgage will almost pay your, your mortgage off 15 years early. Like it's pretty staggering. It pays it off significantly earlier and it saves you thousands of dollars on interest. So that's certainly one way to do it. The other thing that you could do is take and do two extra payments per year, add that up. So let's say your mortgage is $1,000. You're going to do $2,000 and then you're going to divide that by 12. So from there, you then have that monthly amount that you need to pay on extra. Make sure you're paying towards principal only. You're not prepaying anything towards the following month. You never want to do that if you're trying to pay something off early. But that's the other way to approach it too, is just do a very, very set extra payment every single month. Now here's the third option and it works again, very similarly, but it's kind of a fun way to go too. And this is by setting up biweekly payments. And you can do this directly with your lender if they allow it. Sometimes they don't, but a lot of them will these days. And so the way it works is every single 
you know, twice biweekly, every two weeks, you're paying half of your mortgage amount every single two weeks. So again, let's say it's a $1,000 mortgage, you would divide that by two. So every two weeks, you're paying $500. The reason why this works is because again, you're paying an extra couple payments per year. So it's a similar thing, but all three are designed to pay off your mortgage in at least half the time. But the other piece too is yes, it'll pay it off and have the time, but it just depends on what, what makes sense for your life and which one of those strategies resonates with you most. So those are the three I would personally pursue. And of course, if you have any tax return money or anything of that sort, if you typically get a refund around tax time, you could always put that directly towards your mortgage as well. So those are just some options. But again, the question I would really be asking yourself more than that is, is this your dream home? Do you actually want to put that much money into the house or is it better putting it towards an investment that grows over time and helps you achieve the down payment for your dream home? So it's just something to think through, but I think either way you're in really good standing and I'm excited to see what you do. Thank you so much for your question. All right, guys, we've covered a ton of ground. I hope you enjoyed this Q&A episode. If you have a question that you would love for me to answer, shoot me a message on Instagram or even send me an email. Either way is super great. I'm on Instagram at Whitney underscore Hanson underscore co. And I'm my emails Whitney at WhitneyHanson.com. So if you want to submit a question for me to answer and you want a second set of um, eyes or opinion on something, send it my way and I will hopefully answer in the next Q&A. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hope you're having a great Wednesday and I will see you on Friday for five tip Friday and for another episode of the money nerds podcast.